This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with support from Care Of, a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Care Of's fun online quiz asks you about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, and takes only about five minutes to find out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. I let them know about my energy dip in the afternoon and that I want to recover faster from exercise, and I got a personalized list of recommendations. Your vitamins get delivered right to your door in little easy-to-remember daily packs, perfect for busy people. Vegan and vegetarian supplement options are available to meet your dietary needs. For 25% off your first month of personalized Care Of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code Nocturne. That's 25% off your first month of vitamins at TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code Nocturne at checkout. listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. A warning here. In the first few minutes, there are a couple of descriptions of things that might make some folks squeamish. And if you're listening with young kids, you might want to skip ahead. Okay, here we go. My name is Brent. I'm 51 and I'm a funeral director. There's three prongs of a, a funeral director's job. There's one which is arranging. You sit down with the family and take in what they need in, in terms of a funeral. The second part is embalming, and embalming is the temporary preservation of human tissue for funeral purposes. Uh, so that you know, you're not trying to sanitize the body totally, you're just making the person presentable for a visitation because many, many people still prefer to be at a visitation. That involves injecting formaldehyde solution into the body and uh, forcing the blood inside the body out of the body. Uh, so it can be it can be a kind of a disturbing kind of thing now and then. And then finally, the third part is directing, and directing is where the day of the funeral you're you're there and you're accompanying the deceased in a casket to the church or at the funeral home or or wherever, and then you uh, go to the cemetery and uh, get them buried. The reason I, I'm a funeral director is because I get to help people through three or four short, miserable days of their life and make those four days a little better. And then they're gone and I'm off to the next family. It's a constant renewal in terms of the process. There's always somebody coming in, somebody always leaving. The thank yous that you get, people are so grateful for the smallest of things. You hold the door for them at the visitation. You. You see somebody who's looking uncomfortable and grab them a bottle of water and just pass it to them. And they are, people remember you forever for that. It's really gratifying emotionally. At the same time, you're also immersed in other people's pain. And uh, you have to learn how to detach from it. And, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's, it's too much. And uh, which is what happened with my last one, so. This is the part that I warned you about in the beginning. It's a little hard to hear, at least for me. We had a uh, younger man who uh, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Somebody pulled into his lane at the last second and he was broadsided by a uh, SUV. And he was probably going 60, 70 kilometers an hour when it happened. So there was a fair amount of physical trauma. And I was asked to involve uh, him 
and uh, and I did. But it was because of the physical trauma. It uh, it took a long time to get him uh, because he was so young and because it was an accident. There was an autopsy. So there's even more physical trauma added to what he had already gone through in the accident. And so it's, lack of a better word, kind of gory. And, uh, you know, there are, there, are, there are broken limbs and it's hard. You know, it's, it's nine hours of me and my assistant working, putting him back together, improvising, trying to make him look as much like him uh, as I possibly could, given what had happened to him. Uh, which was hard, and uh, both his limbs and his face uh, had it needed needed some work. I just know that, uh, that that like his funeral was far more emotionally devastating than any I've done in years, and uh, I haven't haven't cried that much since um, since I was an intern. That difficult funeral was even more difficult than it normally would have been for Brent. That was my last week of work that that happened. The funeral home that Brent worked for had asked him to leave sometime before this, and he hadn't been happy in the job for a while. He was 51 years old and lost. I was pretty uh, confused. I had just been, it was a mutual decision to get laid off. At the same time, it hurt. Uh, any job ending like that, no matter how good the terms are, and we left on, on great terms with one another, still hurt and I was sort of anxious about what's going to happen next in terms of my career because I'd been there for five years but uh, the, the five years working in Toronto took its toll. I, I was commuting at least two hours a day uh, often more than that on snow or rain days and uh, sometimes because I live in Barrie which is considered the, the snow belt region of Ontario it would be so bad that I had to actually stay overnight in Toronto. It wasn't just the commute that was problematic, but what it meant in terms of his relationship to the work. I'm basically working in a community, but not being part of that community. And funeral service is, is really about families and, and people. And when I had first envisioned becoming a funeral director, I had envisioned myself as a small town funeral director. It was just part of the, the fabric of the town. I thought that the job would be about helping the people around me. And that's not what I felt like I was doing because we're so far away in Toronto. I just felt so detached from where I was living and, and the community that I was living in. I, I felt like my house was a hotel, but most of my waking life was actually spent at my job. Basically, Brent was feeling stuck. He was being drained by his job and feeling disconnected from his own community. The situation was taking its toll, and the same methods that he used to work with families were backfiring on him in his own life. I detached emotionally from, from the, the families because they didn't need me crying. And that's all well and good when you're dealing with the family, but I was doing that with myself too. I, I just didn't really take care of myself. You know, there's a, there's a thing that happens when you've held a job for a while where you just start tolerating to get along. And I hadn't realized how unhappy I was. So this is the emotional space that Brent was in. He was burned out, numb, and he didn't really know what to do next. So he went into nature. I was camping with my family, my wife and my two children. It's Rastoul Provincial Park, which is, I want to say about four hours from Toronto. 
it is all hills and rocks and trees and lakes and rivers and stuff like that. It's rugged. It is the Canadian Shield, and it's some of the oldest rock known to mankind. Some of it goes back four billion years. So it's it's a primitive kind of landscape. And where I, where I was, there isn't a lot of people. There's recreational cottages and whatnot, but not a lot of habitation or anything like that. It was our second day of camping. So the first night we set up, and then we had a day of, of hiking, and it was a gorgeous day, but although uh, incredibly hot and humid. And uh, we were, you know, kind of overwhelmed by the heat and stuff like that, and I, uh, I was kind of tired. I'd made dinner, and then uh, sort of excused myself because I needed to be alone, because sometimes you just need some quiet time, and you need to be by yourself and stuff. And I find often with my work, Sometimes I have to take time like that to just be and, and contemplate. I think sunset was around 9 o'clock that night. And this is 8.30, I made the decision to go off on my own. And what I did was I just sort of wandered away and I noticed that there was a really high ridge above the campground where I was. And I thought that it'd be really interesting because we were camping on a lake to get up there and have a look at night, see the stars and the moon because it was a full moon that night and just, just be up there on my own and have a look. And of course, I, having camped since I was an infant, thought that I knew what I was doing. Turns out I didn't. And I broke a couple rules right there because it was dusk and you're not supposed to go hiking at dusk. And the second thing you shouldn't do is if you're gonna go hiking at dusk, bring somebody else with you. And I didn't do that either. In his contemplative mood, Brent hiked up the hill alone. I thought I was going in the right direction because uh, I got up under that ridge and I had my look. It was a decent view of the lake, but it wasn't great. But that was okay. It wasn't really to go for the view. It was more just to isolate myself a bit and, and contemplate on my own. The light gradually began to dim. You can see in front of you, but it's getting to the point where you're not seeing all the colors anymore. Some stuff is in black and white now. There are all sorts of pine trees above me, and they're the long, spindly kind, and they're, they are dense. And they seem to be getting denser as I was going, actually. And I think that might have been part of the problem as well. When Toronto, or southern Ontario, gets into these heat waves, which we were in the middle of one at the time, the air goes completely still. It's really hot, moist air that comes up from the Gulf of Mexico and uh, basically sits on top of us. It does not cool off those nights. And it's, it's an airless kind of heat. The air doesn't move, it's still. So I'm hearing traffic on the one road that's near me for a bit. And then I realized that all of a sudden I couldn't hear it anymore. It was there and then all of a sudden I noticed it was gone. And I, I think I might've crossed a ridge that blocked out the sound after that. I, I don't know. Because there's so many ridges along there, the sound echoed like you would not believe. You really couldn't go by the sound of things where what direction things really were. That was part of what was throwing me in terms of getting back was that none of what I was hearing uh, made any sense. And even though it was a clear night, I couldn't get a good fix on the moon because the trees were so abundant. By that time, the crickets are, are coming out. And so I'm, I'm hearing crickets, I'm hearing birds. Not much else, really. I, it, it's pretty still more than anything. 
it's crickets and birds and the occasional snap of a of a twig or two. Uh, you don't know. Now, I'm sure there are small rabbits and mice and whatnot running on the floor, but I can't see them because it's getting really dark. He's starting to see less and less, but he's really not even noticing much of what he's seeing. I was really preoccupied with my my circumstance, where I was in terms of work and my life, and uh, I wasn't thinking at all. And that was the, that's what got me into this, was ignoring what was around me. And I'm sitting on a, on a log, fallen log, and just sort of sitting there and sweating and contemplating because I just finished climbing this ridge. And uh, it was incredibly hot. I was already soaked head to toe. At that point, it's where you decide that, no, it's not dusk anymore, it's night. But I was okay with that because I had kept track of where I was going and I'm sure I was going to be back, back campsite soon. So I just sat there for a while, enjoyed it a good 10, 15 minutes or so, and just contemplated what was going on and tried to listen to everything around me. One of the things that always disappoints me when I go camping is that I'll often end up doing all the camping things where you're hiking and fishing, and I don't take time to just appreciate what's there. And that's what I was really trying to do more than anything, because really you don't get many of those chances to do that. And, uh, oh, and I should add, by the way, that I never actually bothered telling anyone, uh, like my wife or my two children, that um, I was leaving on this little excursion, so they didn't even know I was gone. Which is why she called me an asshole later on, but anyway. <laughs> Brent had had his quiet escape to sit and be alone with his thoughts. He stood up and prepared to walk back to the campsite and his family. And I turned around and I started coming down the way I thought I came. He'd noticed some trail markers as he made his way up the ridge. But what I hadn't noticed was what they looked like back behind me. I didn't pay close attention because, frankly, I had a lot on my mind. I wasn't thinking clearly. I didn't even bring my phone with me. And now he wasn't able to make out the details of the woods around him. Not very well at all. It's lit by the moon now more than anything. Fortunately, there was a lot of birch, and I could see the white of the bark, and and I can see shadows on the ground and, and logs on the ground, stuff like that, but it, the footing is getting harder and harder to see where I'm going and whether it's safe or not. And I scraped myself, uh, of course, because I you know, uh, lost my footing and uh, scraped it on a rock or a log or something like that. And I proceeded off in the direction that I thought uh, I'd come in and kept on going and kept on going. and. I'm having this slow realization that it's not like a panic at the, at the pit of my stomach, but more of a, an unease that, you know, none of this is looking exactly like I remember it. And just going off and going off and thinking to myself, okay, well, when I get over there to that spot over by that big rock, I'll take stock, figure out what's going on and, and I'll just get back on my way and I'll hear the road and I'll get back down to the road and I'll be fine. And then a few more minutes pass where I'm walking and the, the going is getting tougher. Uh, it turns out that I had walked myself into a bog. The footing is terrible. Every third uh, step I'm, I'm taking now is on top of a log instead of on the ground because uh, it's either wet or unstable. 
and I I'm getting bit uh, repeatedly by mosquitoes so much so that my hands are fairly swollen by the end of this and I'm sweating profusely because of course it's hot and I'm exerting myself and it's hard trying to walk through a bog and then it dawns on me that there was no bog involved in my walk in so why am I walking in a bog now and that's when I I stopped and and said oh god I'm lost and there's this rush of panic that, that goes into you when that happens it's this I'm in a situation that I'm in no control over anymore you know I'm not Grizzly Adams or anything like that but you know I've been backcountry camping I've done you know I'm just car camping at this point and this is nothing it's not anything rugged and yet I've managed to get myself into a rather ugly situation. There were a few anxieties that emerged at this point. The first had to do with a posted sign Brent had seen at the campground about a black bear in the area. That sparked some fears from camping as a kid. I'm sure that the last thing the bear is interested in in the dark is me. I know on a rational level that the bear probably isn't anywhere near me and even if it is it's nowhere near interested in me and at the same time the tall-beard boy in me is panicking like you would not believe and I had to keep I had to keep tamping that down and even though I know better and I know that I know what to do and for that matter I was doing it because I'm, I'm making so much noise that I'm sure that all the bears probably within 10 miles of me knew where I was and probably wanted nothing to do with me Additionally, while Brent knew that he was probably not in danger of being lost forever, he worried about a long night ahead. That I would be stuck out in the middle of a bog for 10 or 12 hours until they could find me in the morning. While Brent was panicked and sweaty, wet and covered in mud, and with a growing constellation of mosquito bites and scrapes, none of those were really the hard part. Surrendering to being lost is hard. What do you mean I'm lost? You know, I'm a 50-year-old man. I, you know, uh, I don't get lost. And admitting to yourself that, yeah, you messed up, that's hard. And especially in a situation like that, where there's no way for me to get out of this, I have to rely on getting a hold of somebody else and getting somebody else to get me out of this. And so I'm asking for help. Instead of me being the caregiver, I need care. And it's, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm getting it. And something about getting that, really accepting that he was not in control, that was a turning point. One of the things that I was thinking about was that even though I am covered head to toe in mud, I have mosquito bites, I am thoroughly soaked between my own sweat and the... Uh, the humidity and the bog, I'm still far happier lost in this stupid bog than I was at my last job. And, and it dawned on me that, no, that this layoff was actually a really good thing because it's placed me where I want to be, which is in nature, contemplating my life. It, you know, I'm lost in the woods, but I'm being forced to analyze what's going on. And coming to realize that I wanted to own who I was instead of being passive. 
it's the first time in a long time where I had to confront something visceral and important to me, you know, which is basically my own safety. <laughs> I'm all of a sudden, instead of worrying about funerals and times and dates and spellings of everything and paperwork, I'm thinking about how do I preserve me and how do I get me out of this situation? And it was a really interesting thing because I haven't done a lot of that. I'm in the woods and I'm having a pretty exciting time. I mean, yeah, I'm panicking, uh, you know, at the pit of my stomach, but, but at the same time, I'm alive and I'm out where I want to be. He was where he wanted to be, and he also wanted to find his way back to the campsite. And... I was, well, frankly, embarrassed as all get out. Uh, that was my first thought is, oh God, how do I get myself out of this now? And then my second thought was, I can't get myself out of this. I have to ask for help. And, and that's when my, my childhood camping came into focus because I was a Boy Scout and a cub before that for a very long time through my childhood. And uh, you get taught things about getting lost and how to, how to get unlost. And I actually remembered exactly what I was supposed to do and I did exactly what I, I was supposed to do. I sat down uh, in a comfortable spot where I thought I was safe and I started calling for help. And I did this every 15 seconds or so to different directions kept it short, knew that I had to keep my voice. So I'm not screaming, but I have a pretty good voice and it can carry. He yelled out his name and other basic information over and over again. Help. I'm at campsite 61 at Restool. I'm lost. I need help. Uh, I'm physically okay, but I do not know where I am. I'm announcing my wife's name. I'm trying to send word back to her. I'm shouting out her cell phone number. I'm asking people to call the park warden, and I'm getting no response. After maybe 20 minutes, a long 20 minutes of yelling into the dark, muggy night, someone heard him. Turns out the guy at the north end of the campground, he had basically the last campsite in the place, came back to his campsite with his wife and heard some guy yelling in the distance. And so he climbed up a ridge turns out to be the same ridge that I'd gone over to hear better because he couldn't make out what I was saying. And once he realized that it was, he, he shouted to me that he'd heard me. Although, frankly, at that point, I was actually unsure that I'd heard him call back. I thought maybe that it was sort of wishful thinking on my part. So I didn't first pay attention to, to what he said at all. And then it dawned on me that he was actually responding to me. And at that point, then I just sort of breathed a sigh of relief because I knew that it was going to be over soon. But, uh, but until then, I was pretty anxious, majorly anxious. <laughs> that wasn't the end of the anxiety, though. The dark woods still had a bit more self-realization to impart. Now, once that's happened, though, then another anxiety sits in because, of course, now the gears of the Ontario Park Service are now engaged in getting me out of there. And I'm, I hope I'm not taking somebody away from something important so they can rescue this guy who got lost in the woods. And so I'm waiting there and I'm going, what am I going to tell them when they find me? What am I going to tell them when I find And I can't think of anything. And, and then it dawned on me that tell them what happened. Tell them the truth. And facing that truth, it was actually a really liberating thing. 
because instead of having to make some sort of cover story or trying to cover my embarrassment, I can say, no, I got confused up there. I was hiking in the dark by, by myself. I did something stupid and I need your help. And I'm okay with that now and owning the mistake and owning up to it. And, uh, owning up to myself felt really good to me for some reason. So what happens is the warden starts calling towards me and he's trying to find me from the sound of my voice. And so I'm, I'm being quiet when he asks me to be quiet and I'm yelling when I'm, when I'm yelling and he asks me to turn in certain directions so we can sort of figure out where I might be. And then eventually I see a light. And so this is the first light I've seen since dusk. And again, another sigh of relief. And uh, at that point I saw, I can see your light. And he goes, great. So walk towards it. And so I started walking towards him. He starts walking towards me. And so we meet and, and he takes me back. It's around 10 or 10.30 at this point, just a couple of hours lost in the woods at night. Brent is reunited with his family. They thought he was joking when he first told them that the park warden had to come find him. He knew he was never in mortal danger, but the experience moved him. I'm elated. I'm just happy to be there. I'm a little overwhelmed by it at the, at the time, but I'm just, I'm alive. I'm in a place I, I love. I, I had a bad experience, but I'm physically fine. I'll be okay. All of a sudden, I, I realized I got a better sense of who I was. You know, saying, this is me. This is what makes me happy. You know, I like being in nature. This is who I am. And knowing that far more than I knew before. I think because being lost, it's such a visceral thing. It scares you. It really scares you. And to come away from it and still be okay. And for that matter, having that realization that I did, that I was happier, sweating, lost in a forest than I was at my old job, just floored me. You know, I'm at the point now where I've got 15, 20 years maybe until retirement. And why not make these happy ones? Uh, I've decided that uh, holding off being happy until I retire is a ridiculous notion. I might still stay in funeral service. I might not. I, I don't really know right now. If I'm not a funeral director, that's fine. That's just doesn't, my work doesn't define who I am at all. The things that I love do. Sometimes it takes losing your way in the dark to realize that you are already lost. And now I've got a totally different perspective than I did before. And I, dear God, I hope it's going to be an, an easier ride from now on because I, I'm trying to not make life so miserable for myself anymore. I'm becoming much more the person that I'd hoped I could be instead of the person that I was. Which I think really is the best you can hope for when you find yourself lost. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Thanks to Care Of for supporting Nocturne. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code Nocturne for 25% off your first month of vitamins. Nocturne is produced with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, which provides resources to creative storytellers around the world. 
finally, there's some big news coming up next month for Nocturne. If you're a longtime listener, you'll notice a couple of changes, and I wanted to give you a heads up. I can't say more right now, but we're pretty excited about it, so keep an ear out. Till then, thanks for listening.